21CL Radio. Happy Monday morning to you, and welcome to the Education Vanguard. I'm your host, Michael Bowl. Thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for helping us out here at 21st Century Learning as we are continuing to be building communities of learners. Today, I've got psychologist Doug Ota. What is wrong with this student of mine? He just moved to the most fantastic international school in the world, mine, and he just seems to be lost and flailing about. Well, I guess that is just a teenager for you. I don't want to admit I have made that exact statement, but maybe I've had a similar thought or two to explain the behavior of students, both new and not new, at the beginning of the school year. Well, as you're about to hear today, this behavior we are seeing may have a much deeper rooting and explanation. Dr. Andis, which is a funny title, check it out on Wikipedia, Doug Ota talks about the emotional activities that are happening in our brains when we depart one location and move to another, or when we are living in one place and our friends depart from us. This disruption to our attachment systems, that's a new concept for me that I learned today, has a direct and not so positive impact on our ability to focus on learning. Find out more about Doug, including links to his book on his website, safepassage.nl. Until then, enjoy the conversation. Dr. Douglas Ota, thanks very much for joining me on the program today. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I saw you, gosh, about three weeks ago in Bangkok uh, at the Coast Leadership Summit. You did a three-part uh, series about really what it's like for somebody who is moving in, for, say, a student or so who's moving to a new school, all the feelings that they're experiencing, and then also the feelings that people are experiencing that were left behind. And I think for us as teachers, we're often pretty much unaware or just don't even think about what's going on in, in our students' heads. So if you could talk a little bit about what's it like, do you think, for a new student to enter a school, and what are they really going to be focused on? Because as you pointed out, it's probably not how to get the right answer to the math problem. That's right. Yeah. Well, first, I'd also empathize with the teachers in that situation. I mean, the beginning of the school year is this uh, crazy time where you're trying to get everything in the right place and dealing with practicalities. And then a guy like me comes along and starts uh, talking to audiences like the one you were in about all these invisible things that are going on. Yeah, I want to say I'm thankful that, that you didn't do that at the beginning of the school year. You waited till I was two or three months in. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, well, that's, that's good that we're having this conversation, you know, <laughs> yeah. early because uh, early December and November is around the first time in a school year where people can actually get their heads around these things sure. because uh, education is trying to happen in the meantime. Hmm. But what I was trying to explain, I think, in my presentations is that uh, even though people might look like uh, all the lights are on, people are at home, and this goes for not only the students, but this is also for, for parents and even for staff and teachers, and yes, also for administrators. Mm -hmm. If you've had your attachment system deep in your mammalian brain strained by having people uh, who you care about uh, leave you or you've left them behind, then literally blood is flowing to that part of, uh, of the brain as you try to cope with what you've been through. Mm -hmm. And nobody, nobody can see this. This process is invisible. It's just like all of us know at a cocktail party when somebody asks us, say, uh, how you doing? And you say... I'm doing great, and really, you're not doing great. There's a lot of energy going to the act, and that energy is taking glucose, 
and that glucose is not flowing to the learning centers that you think might be getting activated as you try to talk about a math lesson as a teacher or as, a, as you try to talk about your next grammar lesson or a piece of literature. They look like they're at home, but they're not. And what's happening at those moments that I'm trying to educate people about is the amygdala and the fight and flight centers deep in the lower early parts of the brain, the parts that evolved long, long uh-huh. before our cortex. The, what, the part that said run away from the dinosaur. That's right. Okay. The part that saying either run or fight or freeze, mm-hmm. fight, flight, or freeze. It's trying to make a quick assessment of the danger. And as those alarm bells go off, when you see that in a little kid, a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you'll see a three- or a four-year-old scream at the crash that he or she doesn't want mama to leave. Um, right. Or if they're not getting an ice cream cone or something at the, at the supermarket that they really want, they'll scream, at least until they're getting a little bit more socialized. <laughs> and, and if the parents Or, or until they get married and then they're whining and crying to their wife that they want the ice cream cone. That's right. Some people are still doing this later. And, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> That can become problematic for themselves and their partners and society. And that could be part but, two, but going back to part one. That could be part two, right. That's what, that's what psychologists are often, often dealing with. But uh-huh. and when you're seeing uh, this in a little kid, that makes, that makes good sense. Your elementary school teachers are seeing this. It's, it's age appropriate in, in the kindergartens and at preschools. And it becomes increasingly age less appropriate as, as kids get older. And that's because the infrastructure is growing in the frontal parts of the, of the brain that allows human beings to cope with these difficult feelings. And especially from an area that's called the prefrontal cortex. And mm-hmm. as that area fires up and is able to cope with the deep feelings that are coming from the amygdala region of the brain... That's great that those areas are doing that, but it takes energy. It literally takes glucose and it tires us out. And that glucose can't be used in other areas mm-hmm. where you might want the learning to be happening. Now, you, you mentioned, I was going to go take a step back. I understand what the brain's doing now, uh, but you mentioned that it's their attachment system that gets disrupted. What do you, what do you mean by that? What's an attachment system? Well, attachment is a word that um, I'm using in the psychological sense because it can have uh, sort of negative or kind of uh, puerile kind of connotations used in certain situations. But attachment, as psychologists uh, use the term, is a very positive thing. Uh It's the ability to feel safe and protected with other people. And uh, safe attachment, secure attachment emerges from good, reliable, good enough parenting uh, in the early years. Uh, That failing, it can still occur in later years via corrective relationships and Mm -hmm. also via, for example, a good therapeutic relationship if it's really gone wrong. But secure attachment means that people deep down believe that they can rely on other human beings and other human beings will come through for them. And people with secure forms of attachment, um, they do better mm-hmm. in all areas of human functioning across the lifespan. It's not a little interesting fact to kind of know. It actually increases how people perform in their relationships and at work okay. and also how long they live. 
Oh, and okay. the quality of your physical health. So it's worth paying attention to. Now, are you saying so when, then essentially when a, a, a new student arrives that, that they have a disrupted attachment system, really that's all they're focused on is creating a new one. It's kind of like when you're, I'm back to the dinosaur thing, when you're running out and you're, somebody drops you off from society, you're running around trying to find another one where you can be safe. Is it, is it something to that, to that effect? That's absolutely correct. Michael, that's perfect. They're, they're running around looking for secure places to land Mm -hmm. But they're spending a lot of energy pretending that they're not doing that. Okay. Why Why? Why are they doing that? Why are they faking it? Why aren't they just saying, hey, help me out? Because unfortunately, that's what society teaches them. That's what society reinforces for all of us. Uh, okay. Not to necessarily wear our hearts on our sleeves. And because people use that uh, against us when we do. There's all kinds of social norms about, you know, how much do you show? And, for example, the classic joke made about... Um, well, <laughs> people who come from North America, for example, from mm -hmm. a European perspective, is that uh, when we Americans say, hey, how you doing? Um, a Dutch person might sort of say, well, they want to go and explain how they're doing, but it's not really a question. <laughs> Nobody's really actually waiting for the answer. And that can be disconcerting <laughs> for 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 people from people uh, from the continent, uh -huh. so it's 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 a societal kind of thing that teaches us all to sort of accept with the people we trust, keep your your really personal layers kind of more hidden, mm -hmm. and a lot of energy gets uh, exhausted by by doing that. All right, so I think I understand. Just we have... to... oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to add to your point, it's not just the new kids who are sitting there. Uh, who are actually looking for a safe place to attach and they're spending lots of energy pretending that they're not doing that. It's also the students who are sitting there who had for maybe another second year or a third year in a row a good friend or even a best friend oh, leave right. them. Right. And their amygdalas are straining as well. They're also wondering, oh my gosh, um, I'm feeling so bad about, you know, John leaving. I'm back at school and I'm really seeing for true, for, for real, John's not here anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're not only worried about that, but they're also wondering, do I want to make a new friend? Um, yeah, I see that, that, you know, Fred over there is new, but last time I made a, a good friend with a new person and he left again the next year. And so their attachment mm -hmm. system, that term that I'm using, gets kind of wear and tear just like a car. And it can wear down if it's not taken care of, just like a car. So I think, I think that's a good point, because when we first started talking about this, I was thinking attachments just for somebody who's losing their attachment system or is disrupting it is actually leaving someplace. But of course, the people who are there are losing their attachment systems as they depart from them at that same location. Okay, so I think I understand that. But moving yeah, forward then, as if I'm a teacher, and I understand what you've talked about so far, and what clues should I look for? And what should I do? Like, what would you suggest I do? And I think you maybe even wrote a whole book about this, right? That's right. Well, um, the last thing you want to do is single anybody out, of course, because teenagers and, and you know, kids from middle childhood onwards don't mm -hmm. want to be different than anybody else either. Sure. So it's, um, it, let me answer this question in, in two different ways. The, the way to look out for it is by assuming that it's happening to literally everybody in your classrooms. And that's a safe assumption. Because it probably, right? it is. Okay. It probably is. In any school with any significant amount of turnover, people are coping with this, even though they don't look like they are. So it's safe to make the assumption and to also tell people, you know, and you and I both know, 
that you are going through these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And what schools and, and classrooms and teachers individually need to just simply make, make space for is for the conversations um, about these kinds of topics to occur. It's kind of like assuming the sale. It's not, it's not a question of whether somebody's going to buy this. They're going to buy it. They might not want to buy it. Mm -hmm. But um, this issue is going on. So what would you say then to the teacher has a perspective? Look, let, let's not go and talk about this and dwell on it and whine about it. Let's just move forward and toughen up, young man or young young lady. What, what What's your response to something like that? Well, uh, the reason why, 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 you know, people treat other people the way they treat themselves. And huh, so okay. a, a teacher who's saying something like that is probably using the very same coping strategies that they tend to use okay, yeah. for themselves. Okay. And that makes sense because that's probably what they were taught. That's probably what happened to them if they had strong feelings. And in fairness to that teacher, they probably need some help understanding what the alternatives might be. And that's where um, teachers who are more familiar with and more comfortable with uh, these kinds of issues, and obviously counselors and professionals like that, really need to play a leadership role in helping people understand. So what do you do about this? Mm -hmm. And how do you make it... Uh, how do you make it approachable you know, in a way that, that everybody can access, uh, both the students and the more reluctant teachers? To come back to that point, though, teachers who have had their needs met are going to be more able to meet the needs of their students. Okay. This, is a human, okay. this is a human thing that doesn't just affect uh, the students. It's affecting the teachers involved in mobile schools, and it's affecting the parents involved in mobile schools. And so a good place to start is by training teachers and giving teachers an outlet, quite frankly, the very same thing that you might like to happen in classrooms with students, for example, in a guidance or in a, in a um, yeah, some kind of a guidance lesson, the same kind of thing that you would do for your students. That actually maybe needs to happen first for teachers where they're given a chance to talk about what does mobility do to them. Because when teachers have a well-maintained attachment system, just like a well-maintained car, having a well-maintained car, mm -hmm. then they know what to do and are going to be more interested in doing the things that need to be done to help their students. And you're less likely to have a teacher say what you just quoted, you know, right. oh, we just got to get up with it, toughen up, right? So I was wondering, you know, when you, when I heard you say these things, my reaction was, and it shouldn't have been, it's like, oh yeah, of course, it was like, in some way, it was, a, it was almost new information to me, which, but then when I think about it, reflect on it, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, I don't know why I didn't think of it. Well, I'm just wondering what the typical reaction is in workshops that you give of teachers when they hear about what you're, what you're communicating here, what, what, what thoughts go through their head? What do you hear back from them? Well, a lot of times it's, um, uh, there's, there's first a word of encouragement. There are thousands and thousands of teachers and administrators who really get this and understand this. Okay. Uh, and they're all over the place, but they don't know about each other. <laughs> and they often don't even know each other about each other at their, at the same school where they all work. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes it's about creating a venue or even an opportunity where this kind of issue and what's being done about it can be talked about by people who are already doing some good things to address it. And that's where uh, a transitions team can start to form in a kind of nucleic fashion 
with two or three or four individuals at schools um, who are doing this kind of thing. But just like, you know, this is kind of an obvious, a lot of obvious ideas that occurred, you know, as you were listening to some of my talks. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things are happening in kind of this obvious way right down the hallway, but people do not know that about each other. Um, So I don't know if that's an answer to your question as to sort of how to jumpstart these kinds of processes. No, it is. It sounds uh, like what you're saying is, look, these things are going on anyways, but perhaps people should bring that knowledge base together and actually do it as a more committed plan rather than just some teachers are doing it because that's their world. They understand it and some aren't. Well, I gave you the good news first. Uh The the bad news (laughs) is that there, there are also lots of people who... Uh, either do not see this as a school's uh, issue to deal with, sure, or they see this as as too big of an issue uh, to deal with. Uh, kind of like the way people deal with their one vote in a democracy, or even you know their contribution to global uh, climate improvements. You know, what am I going to do as one person? Mm-hmm. Well, it starts with one person, right? And um, the that that sort of discouraged sort of reaction that. Uh, you're familiar with, obviously, and that I certainly hear lots of times. Um, that can, I think, be for a lot of reasons. That can be how how people deal with their own emotions, like I referred to. Mm-hmm. That can be uh, a sign of just teacher overwhelm, overwhelmment, if that's a word. Uh, just being. <laughs> I think we get the point of it. That's that's a cool word. Right? I can look it up. There's later. a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we educators are asked to do, and. This is a huge one that I'm talking about. Uh, oh my gosh, what the heck am I going to do with this when I'm trying to? I'm struggling to get through the curriculum, and I'm in my third year even teaching this course. Uh-huh, right? right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of competition well, for important things, so it's sometimes that's it's, right. it's hard well, to know what to pick. And here's where I pull out my club, which is yeah, um, the uh, you know the work from uh, Visible Thinking. Um, and the book that I quote at the beginning of my book uh, by Professor John Hattie, mm-hmm. which is the largest ever uh, study of what works in education in the history of all educational research since since written educational research began. Okay. The largest study in educational research history shows that of all the things, because Hattie was looking for the things that help learning, and he came out with 134 items in ranked order that uh, that help learning. And down at the bottom, there's four things that he bumped into by accident. And I talked about this in my talk in Bangkok, of course. Mm-hmm. Four things that, oh, by the way, these things hurt learning. They don't not only fail to contribute to positive learning outcomes, the things he was looking for, these things point in the opposite direction direction their effect sizes are negative and at the very bottom at item number 138 was mobility when you move kids Mm -hmm. that harms their learning outcomes and if that's not enough to get educators attention when something like 13 million students were involved in all of the studies that he combined into a meta meta study Uh If if that's not enough to get our attention, because I think learning and teaching kids, uh, you know, to have helping kids have good positive learning outcomes is probably at the core of every school's mission statement, one way or another. Then you know I don't know what else to do to get people's attention. <laughs> 
I think I understand that. All right. So I, I yeah. but wanted to ask you, uh, why why did you get involved? I mean, there's lots of things you can study and do and whatever. And why did you get involved in this? Like, what? Why did this become something that you're passionate about? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I I became passionate about it because it happened to me, and there was no book that I could go pick up to figure out what the heck was happening to me. Uh-huh. When I moved to the Netherlands from the United States in 1993, I thought I was just coming to Europe and was going to have a great time and that all the hard work that I'd done in the United States was just going to transfer directly over here. And I landed in such a deep hole um, psychologically, uh, depression-wise, mm-hmm. in terms of the darkness of Northern Europe compared to the brightness of Southern California, where I'd come from. Like, like literally, um, there's more, cl- like the clouds. Literally. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and I talk about that in, in, in my book, how I thought, you know, my parents had told me, society had told me, if you get into a good school, it'll take care of you for the rest of your life. So I get into good schools, I go to Princeton, I leave with my diploma, and I come over here. And the Dutch said, where'd you go? And I say, I went to Princeton. They said, oh, uh, never heard about that. Is that a, is, is that a good school? Or is that a, and it was literally my market value went from whatever I thought it was to zero. <laughs> uh-huh. And the only reason I was luckily teaching at the America School of the Hague, so there was some sort of some continuity. Sure. But sure. Uh, I had no idea. Well, here I had, I was feeling terrible um, because I was lost in transition. But I didn't even know that I was lost in transition because I didn't have the vocabulary to even describe what was happening to me. And nobody else around me validated what was happening to me, even my dear wife, because she was coming home to the Netherlands. Oh, and she well, thought, what's wrong Dutch. with you? Okay, sure, yeah. What? What's wrong with you, right? <laughs> and I, I couldn't explain it. Well, couldn't and, you say uh, it's because you keep asking people how you're doing and then they give you these long-winded answers? <laughs> That's what I tried to, but you know, when you're when you're when you're dark and depressed and missing the bright sunshine of, of Southern California, you don't feel like hearing much of any joke. Um, so uh, I, you know, made my way through that, and then uh, as a counselor at the American School of the Hague, helped found a program that went on to really be the the global leader in dealing with this as a systemic issue at schools. So dealing with it as a team involving students, parents, and staff. And from that going on and presenting with that team all over the place. And then really it became my own kind of private passion. Um, and I tried to write the book several times uh, while at the school and with that team. And after leaving the school and going into private practice here in the Netherlands, I just I wanted to see what is this thing going to let me go? Or can I, you know, or, or do I still have to do something with it? And it by no means did it let me go. I continued to present and finally sat down for two years mm-hmm. and, and wrote the book. And so um, I'm proud that it's out there because I think that it. Uh, I'm hoping it's landing in hands of of people who are um, in dark places, but not feeling like there's no map because there really is a map. And they don't have to be from Princeton, or excuse me, from Southern California, having gone to Princeton in order to benefit. No, they don't. Have, they they need to be human, gotcha. and they need to have experienced gotcha. having left people they care about or being le- being being left behind by people they care about and they need to be anywhere between grade k and as as for kindergarten and the administrators ahead of school chair this affects all of us and uh, so i really want to emphasize that this is not just uh, how do we teach our students well this is something that hits every human being's deep brain areas in in all schools with mobility 
Well, let me ask you a final question. So I've sure. got your mission here, and so I'll read a portion of it. It says, Safe Passage strives to build networks of international schools that not only grasp the issues involved when lives are made mobile, but also develop the capacity to address them effectively. So, you know, if we were to talk again in five, ten years out, what do you hope will have changed or have been created in that time? Well, this is my favorite question, Michael. Thank you for asking this one. I hope that in Absolutely. 10 years' time, there are networks of safe passage schools that are working together doing this well. The reason there need to be networks is because one school can't actually address this issue completely by itself. However good its, its staff are and however good its transitions team might be. And the reason for that is because if, let's say, students at your current school, you're doing a great job with them, you're helping them wrap up the year well, you're helping them leave well, mm -hmm. the next school down the road is inheriting your good work. Mm -hmm. And um, and then they're going to pass that student on to the next school when the family leaves then. These are psychological issues that transpire across school walls. And the, the unfortunate reality right now is that most schools are inheriting the not-so-good work that the previous school has done around these emotional issues because the work starts with the goodbye process. The work starts around, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, the month of February, March, and April when people's plans are crystallizing for the next year and the goodbye process really actually needs to get started well. Because as David Pollack taught us, you have to say a good goodbye in order to say a clear hello. So you have no control as a receiving school about how that goodbye process was occurring mm -hmm. at all of the schools that you're inheriting from. And therefore you have no, quote, jurisdiction over whether that school and that school and that school is doing a good job. You just have to take what you get. So my dream is that there are external accrediting agencies that start to see this as so important that they are the only ones who are in a place to enforce, hey, for good learning to occur, this kind of program needs to be well in place at your school if you have a high degree of mobility. And that a receiving school can see, oh yeah, we've got kids coming from a safe passage school. Or a parent can say, hey, of those two schools in Singapore, I want to go to that one because it's a safe passage school. Mm -hmm. You know what you're going to get, just like having you know, a seal of kind of, uh, yeah, a seal of approval that you know they get it there. And our kids aren't just going to be left to their devices at break and lunchtime, standing at the locker or pretending to be studying the library, uh, when in reality it's because they're afraid of going to the lunchroom because they don't have any friends or their best friend left. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Ota. He's a psychologist, author, consultant, presenter, and a long-lost Southern Californian who's always looking for sun in the Netherlands. Uh, Dr. Ota, thanks so much for your uh, time today. Thanks for having me, Michael. This interview was brought to you by 21st Century Learning International. Find us on the web at 21clradio.com.